The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. So I would invite you to open up to 1 John. Uh, We'll be going through chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2 as we begin this series on living in light of God's love. Um, But while you do open up to 1 John, uh, I'm interested to think about how you respond to a crisis. So how do you respond... To a crisis. So let's, let's just take weather, for example, example. okay? So when, it, when there's a snowstorm coming, what are the three things everyone buys at the grocery store? There you go. I don't know why those three particular things, but y'all had it locked in. We know how to respond when there's a snowstorm coming. Or, so picking up on one of those three items, back last spring when the pandemic was really starting to set in and you couldn't find toilet paper anywhere... Exactly. Um, But not just toilet paper. I I remember uh, you couldn't get flour. You couldn't get pasta. I remember going through the aisles of Food Lion and it just being scarce. Now, interestingly enough, the the candy aisle still remained fully stocked, um, but things, you know, that are the essentials were completely gone. And I I think that's a, a helpful illustration when it comes to how we respond to a crisis. You see, crises are clarifying events and how we respond to them reveals what is most important, what's most essential to us. They force us to go back to the basics. Now, unfortunately, crises are far more common than you know the average snowstorm or the once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. They happen regularly in this broken world in which we live. They affect societies as a whole, individuals in particular, everything in between. I mean, churches even are not exempt from crises. We are far too familiar with them within the church. And it's actually a church crisis that led to the letter of 1 John being written. You see, the the apostle John, he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, in fact, one of the, the inner three, along with Peter and James. He wrote the Gospel of John. He served the church, particularly in the region of Asia Minor and the, the city of Ephesus. And, and he loved the church there. And so when word came that some false teachers had risen up within this church teaching a false gospel, John was not just going to sit back and, and hope that everything worked out. No, he, he was going to write a letter. He was going to address the crisis at hand. Now, the, the false teachers uh, gave a false gospel at a number of fronts, but one of the main thrusts of their argument was that Jesus wasn't really who he said he was. He wasn't actually God in the flesh. And so John wasn't just going to take that lying down. He would write three letters, first, second, and third, John, in light of this false teaching. And and in these letters, he he doesn't try to make any grand argument. He's not going to come up with a new, fresh take on Christianity or offer seven tips on how to overcome false teachers. No, he's, he's going to get back to the basics. He's going to respond to a crisis with the foundational truth of the gospel. He's going to remind his audience of what they first believed, and he's going to try to give these followers of Jesus assurance of their standing before God and hope of eternal life. 
And what's fascinating to me is he, he wastes no time doing this. We're, we're kind of used to a traditional introduction to a, a biblical letter, but John just foregoes that and just gets to what he wants to talk about and doesn't really stop until he's done writing. Um, so with all that in mind, we're going to dive into the first part of this letter, uh, and we're going to seek today to see that God is light and that we are to live in his light. So let's pray, and then we'll read First John. God, it is such a privilege to be here today, to gather together, to sing your praises, to unite our hearts and our voices to your glory. And now, God, to take time to open up your word. Lord, what a joy, what a blessing it is to be here today. And so, God, I ask that you would bless our time, that you would uh, bear fruit, have fruit bear from our these next few minutes, that you would speak through me, that you would speak through your word, and that each person here would leave with a better understanding of who you are and of what you've called us to do. God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to try to break this text into three sections this morning, all focused on this message, this foundational truth that John is trying to bring before his audience in light of the scandal of the crisis of the false teachers at hand. So we'll begin with the message debuted. So verses 1 to 4 serve as a prologue of sorts, not only for our passage today, but for the book as a whole. And in it, John debuts this message that he wants to bring to the church to encourage and strengthen them in the face of these false teachers. So, so this is what he wants to draw his readers' eyes to. Look back at verse 1 with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. It's very descriptive. It's not super direct, but it's very descriptive and very intentional. And it is a direct link to the prologue, the beginning of John's gospel. So this is, this is John's letter. This takes us right to John's gospel. Here's how the gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, 1 and 4. So you hear some of these same words used, these same themes, beginning, word of life. They're, they're connected. And so this is John, even without using his name, showing us front and center that he's pointing us to Jesus. Now this then helps us make sense of all these other descriptive words that he uses, how he's talking about what we've heard and seen with our eyes and looked upon and, and touched. So he's talking about Jesus, but he's talking about Jesus as an eyewitness of Jesus. And because he's an eyewitness of Jesus, he's saying, you can trust what I have to say. John's not grasping at straws. He's not desperately trying to come up with a counter-argument to defeat the words of the false teachers. No, he, he's, he's saying, I was there. I saw him. I heard from him. And so why would you trust what these false teachers are saying? Remember, they're getting it wrong. Remember how they, they said Jesus wasn't even God? No, you can trust me. I'm an authority on this matter. And I love that he does it because while I would never want to remove the role of faith from our relationship with God, we can have confidence in what we believe. Jesus did not come behind closed doors with uncertainty or nebulous details all around. No, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses to him, documented events and teachings. I mean, this here is just one example of many. So John appeals to what he's seen and heard from Jesus as qualification for the message that he was about to proclaim, which is actually the the main verb that he's getting at in these first verses. Look at verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So again, he's emphasizing that he's seen this and heard it. He's make he's not making this up. This is real. This happened. And, and then he gives us this interesting line that this life was made manifest. It was with the Father and has been made manifest to us. So it's not that John was just walking around one day and, oh, look, the word of life. I've found it. No, it was made manifest to him which is also something that John tells us in his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So this is how John is beginning this letter. He's pointing us to Jesus and the good news that he brings because this is what the church needed. They had certainly heard this message before, but that's what they needed in the face of the crisis. And the same is true for us today. We, we never outgrow our need for Jesus, for his gospel, his good news. Now, there's one last thing I want us to note in this prologue. The, the why John is making this proclamation, why John is sharing this message of good, the good news of Jesus. Well, he gives us two reasons. The first we see in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that, why? you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he wants the church to have fellowship with him as he has fellowship with God. Now, this is the first, but will hardly be the last time that John links those two aspects of fellowship, the vertical fellowship that he shares with God and then the horizontal fellowship that we share with one another. So be on the lookout for those two linked as we continue. Um, He wants them to have the same 
fellowship that he does. And that word fellowship is koinonia. So you, you might have heard that word thrown out before in the church. It means to have a relationship, communion, participation together because of something that's held in common. In this case, the fellowship that they share with one another is because of their common relationship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Or to try to put it another way and put it all together, John wants to make sure that his readers understand the person and work of Jesus, so who he is, what he does, so that they can have a right relationship with God and with one another. John's readers, ourselves included, always need to consider both our relationship with God and with one another when it comes to our spiritual health. We'll unpack that more a bit later, but the second reason John gives for writing, verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John loves these people. He's going to call them his children throughout this and his other letters to them. And, and as the parents here know, in a very real sense, your joy is tied into the joy of your children. I mean, Christmas morning takes on a whole new meaning when you have kids of your own tearing into those presents. It's a cool thing. And so John here is going to proclaim the message in order to establish the fellowship, which will lead to the completion of his joy. So this is him kind of setting the stage for what we're going to talk about today in the, the book as a whole. We've, we've got our bearings. We've got our eyes looking towards Jesus, the goal of right relationship with God and one another on our minds. So, so let's dive into the message. Point number two, the message defined. Look at verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. So he's going to tell us what it is. And, but before he even does it, he reminds us, this is not for me. This is what I have heard from the Lord himself. Here's the message. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What a beautiful claim. God is light. I'm curious, what, what comes to mind when you hear this? God is light. Well, you know, Jesus claims to be the light in John 8, 12. David says, the Lord is his light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? In Psalm 27. It's a picture we find throughout Scripture, but it's still kind of fuzzy, at least for me. What's, it, what's this mean, God is light? Well, here's, here's at least two implications of this truth. First, that God is light means that God is pure. He is holy. He is unblemished. In him is no darkness at all. It's not that God is mostly pure, but, you know, if you can work the system, if you can get the right angle, then, yeah, you can kind of make things happen. You can, you can find a loophole. No. He is totally, perfectly, flawlessly pure. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've been to an art gallery or a, a fancy jewelry store. I went to one once um, when Becky and I were dating, and I wanted to get a, a, an engagement ring. And so I went to the fancy jewelry store just to see what it was like, and, like, dang, it's nuts. Um, but one of the most interesting things is, is how many lights they have. And me being the clueless, curious person I am, I was like, why you guys got so many lights? They said, oh, well, it's to eliminate shadows. Oh, yeah, we want any angle that you view this piece or this, you know, piece of jewelry or whatever to have no shadows, to not be hidden, to not have its beauty be hidden. We want it to be fully on display no matter what. And that's, that's a small picture of what we're getting at with this, idea, with this idea of God being light. He's not mostly light, but oh, there's this shadowy part over here. No, he is pure light. He is fully holy. That's what God is. 
So God is pure as light, but then a second implication of this truth, as light, God is the source of revelation. So we talked about in the prologue how he is the one who made Jesus manifest to us, but but every word in this book is part of God's revelation. You see, light, it illuminates. It reveals what's going on. I mean, I don't know about you, but have you ever gotten lost somewhere that you are familiar with, but it's dark, so you not quite... I mean, it's just so much easier in the daytime. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is holy and pure, and God reveals himself and his will to us. And now part of that revealing is exposing. In the case of John's reader, that was exposing sin. You see, John is going to use this great truth that God is light. And he's going to have this guide his argument for the next few chapters of this letter. He's going to begin by taking on three false claims that these false teachers we've been talking about were making. And he's going to do it this way. So he's going to introduce their false teaching with the phrase, if we say, so that's kind of our our key to find what the false teaching is. And then he's going to contradict it and say, actually, no, if that's what you believe, you're wrong. And then he's going to end by, by turning it around and giving us a positive, a true statement to move on based off of instead of that false claim. So it, it'll make sense as we see it, but let's, let's go to our third point, the message defended. So he's going to take on these three false claims. He's going to show you that they're false, and then he's going to give hope for his readers. Now, before we do dive into each of those three, I, I want you to consider, where are you at with these? Are these on your radar? Might these be on the radar of your loved ones or the people God has placed in your life? How might you interact with these false claims in your day-to-day goings and comings and goings? So let's look at the first false claim, verses 6 to 7. We have fellowship with God and darkness. Let me read this, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. You you follow that kind of three-step approach that he takes? He he, he introduces the false claim, verse 6, if we say, what they're saying is, we have fellowship with God while walking in darkness. Now remember, fellowship is the reason why he's writing this letter. This is the reason for the message he's proclaiming. That's, that's his goal. But, but the false teachers, they thought, well, why do we need that? We've already got it, and we get to walk in darkness. It would be like saying, you know, I can do whatever I want with my Saturday nights because I'm in church on Sunday morning, so it's fine. Or, you know, it doesn't matter what I watch or what content I stream because I always remember to do my Bible reading. No is John's response to that. He contradicts that false claim, saying, if you say that, you lie and do not practice the truth. It doesn't matter what you say, you cannot walk with God while walking in darkness. Now this is, again, not a novel idea to John. He's not trying to, you know, invent something new here. He's going back to the basics. James 4.4 says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? This is something we desperately need to hear today. You cannot be righteous without pursuing righteousness. You cannot hold on to your sin, your darkness, and think you're okay with God. Well, look, I, I pray, I, I give, I go to church, so who cares if I do this other thing? I, look, see how much progress I've made? I, let me have this. According to John here, that is incredibly dangerous because that sin that you continue to hide, that thing that you refuse to let go of, it is keeping you from fellowship with God. And if you think it's not, Brian, you don't understand. You, I, I've got it under control. You are lying and not practicing the truth. Thankfully, John has the positive statement to contradict this false claim. Verse 7, but, so instead of thinking you can have fellowship with God while walking in darkness, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So instead of walking in darkness, we are to walk in the light as God is in the light. Which, to use our two categories from earlier, we are to be pure as God is pure, and we are to live how his word, his revelation, directs us to live. And as we do, two incredible things happen. First, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Not, not just with God, but with one another. Remember, John likes to link these two, fellowship with God. I mean, at least for me, I'm kind of expecting, oh, if we live how God wants us to live, we have fellowship with him. That's not where he goes. He goes, we have fellowship with one another. If I could put it this way, John says, having a right relationship with God necessarily leads to you being in right relationships with one another. And then the negative of that, you cannot be in right relationship with God without being in right relationship with one another. The fellowship of the church is of utmost significance in John's view here. Now for us, the pandemic has been a massive burden on fellowship. For months, we could not gather. And months later, we are still restricted in how we can gather. And yet, even in the face of these circumstances, we cannot become complacent and lacking fellowship with one another. We need each other. Screens and live streams and podcasts do not cut it. I need you, and you need me. And together, we can help one another walk in the light as God is in the light. So let me ask you, what does the fellowship you share with your church family look like today? Is it superficial, surface-level relationships based on weekly pleasantries and check-ins. Oh, hey, brother, how are you doing? Good, how are you doing? Good, check. Or are you genuinely coming alongside each other, opening up your life, and helping one another become more like Jesus? Well, that's a lot harder and time-consuming and messier. Mm-hmm. But that's the fellowship John says we are to pursue as we walk in the light. 
Second thing that happens when we walk in the light is the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, now here's another necessary pair. In the same way that pairing fellowship with God and fellowship with one another is essential. You can't have one without the other. Same here. You cannot walk in the light without the blood of Jesus cleansing you from sin. And you can't have the blood of Jesus cleanse you from sin without that leading to you walking in the light. Which I just want to pause one second and make sure that we're not allowing our familiarity with this language to kind of numb us to just how odd this is. The blood, so that's the red stuff in our veins, of Jesus, his son, well, that's a capital S, that's kind of weird, cleanses us, which in my experience, blood only makes things messier, from all sin. It's a massive claim. Let's not allow our familiarity with kind of church language to take away from the fact that this is a striking claim that John is making. That as we walk in the light, this is what's happening. Well, what is it? What, what is happening? Well, it's, it's building off of Old Testament sacrificial language, which we're not going to get into at length today, but if you want a wonderful treatment, go to Hebrews 8 to 10. You can read more on that there. The, the point that John is making is that we have sinned. And our sin separates us from God and requires a payment. Jesus, through his death on the cross and the shedding of his blood, made that payment for us, that we might be free of it, might be cleansed from it. I mean, this is what we celebrated last week, right? With Good Friday and Easter. It's what we celebrate every week because it's the greatest news in the history of the world. But unfortunately, not everyone sees it that way. Certainly not the false teachers that John is addressing here, because in verse 8, we see their second false claim. We have no sin. Let's look at 8 and 9 together. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the false teachers didn't care so much about Jesus' death on their behalf because they said they didn't have any sin. Now, it's super important to note that singular sin uh, because what they're talking about is this idea of inherited sin or, or sin in our nature. They, they looked inward and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I don't have any sin. It, a, maybe a better example might be uh, someone who explains sin away by saying, you know, well, I'm not a bad person. Just don't talk to me before I've had my coffee. Or, you know, look, hey, it's not my fault that I responded that way. Look at how I was brought up. What could I do? It's this idea of justifying or rationalizing or trying to explain away sin, calling it anything other than what it is, sin. So the false teachers, they were claiming to have had no sin. But John says, if we say that, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, which translation you do have sin. We all have sin. I mean, we see that that John the Apostle, author of numerous books of the New Testament, includes himself in that statement. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That means John and his audience then and us now all have sin. And so what is needed, John points us to, in the statement of verse 9, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See why I was excited to get into 1 John? This is awesome. Let's, let's break this down. If we confess, so, so confession is honestly acknowledging sin before God, seeking forgiveness of sin, and then turning from sin. Confession is not merely admitting that you sinned. We've got a toddler who's real good at that first part. Doesn't mean he's confessing his sin. He's admitting it. Neither is it just saying, oh, I'm not going to do it again. Again, that's kind of that superficial surface level. Confession is acknowledging that sin occurred, seeking God's forgiveness of it, and then turning from it. And when we confess, when we do that, God is faithful and just. To what? To to punish our sins? He would certainly be just to do that, but no. To forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, he's faithful in doing that, because he's promised to do this. Exodus 34, 6-7, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Micah 7, 19, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So, So he's faithful to his promises. And then he's just, Because as we saw in verse 7, he's provided the payment for that sin in Jesus' blood. God doesn't forgive sin by sweeping it under the rug or moving some numbers around so it magically disappears off the books. No. Jesus, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So yes, you do have sin, but because of Jesus, you can confess your sin to God and he will forgive you freely forever. The question is, will you? Have you? Would you? Would you stop pretending that, you know, you've got it, you've got it together. I don't need to be saved from my sin. Sure, I mess up here and there, but I don't need to be saved from my sin. Would you humble yourself fall onto the mercy of God to forgive you. It is there, ready and waiting for you today. John has one last false claim that he needs to deal with. We have not sinned. Verse 10. If we say, we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, now the the distinction, the difference between this third false claimant and the second one is, is subtle, but it's now they're saying that they have not sinned in practice that their conduct, their lives, are in fact free from sin. Sure, there might be sin in, you know, in nature and systems, that kind of general one from earlier, but, but not in what I've done. And to this claim, John gives his harshest comment. If we say this, it's not simply that we're lying or that we've deceived ourselves. We are making God a liar. And this is because God's word regularly says that all have sinned. 
And then, not just looking at the Word, but at what God has done, God sent His Son to die for sinners, meaning He knows that our sins are so comprehensive that we can't save ourselves from them. We, we can't get out of our sin on our own. So, if you're looking at your life, and you genuinely do not see any areas of sin or of struggle with sin, then I would encourage great caution. Certainly at calling yourself a Christian, because God's word speaks so strongly against this claim that, well, I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything that bad. Not according to the word of God. But as has been the case all morning, there is hope once again. My little children. John John takes a pause. For the other two, he just kind of keeps on moving through. False claim is wrong. So if, positive claim, but here he's going to take a second. My little children. And then he's going to ascend to the highest of heights for hopes. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John doesn't want his readers to sin. So even though he's, he's already acknowledged that sin in one form or another, or another is present in us all, that's never an excuse for any of us. We are to pursue sinlessness. Jesus' command in John 5.14, sin no more, applies to each and every one of us. And yet, at the same time, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So if we do sin, if we do fall short of that standard, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, now this advocate is a legal term, so I want you to, to picture something with me. Picture yourself in the courtroom. So you're in the courtroom, and you are guilty, like 100% dead to rights, easiest day for the prosecution ever, guilty. But then in walks your advocate, someone who's going to take up your cause in the presence of the judge, and he's got a real interesting strategy. So he's not just going to say, oh no, they didn't do it, they're innocent, or he's not going to try to make up some excuse or anything. No, he's going to say that the penalty that we rightly deserve, has already been paid. And so because of that, we can go free. And here's where it gets just the best part. It's been paid by him, by Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what verse 2 here unpacks. That's what propitiation is all about. Propitiation is just your fancy Atoning sacrifice might be a helpful way to to think about it. Jesus' death in our place for our sins. Uh, John Stott, a British pastor and theologian, he, he uses good words to describe it. He says, it is the appeasement or satisfaction of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. Which is to say, God is the one who does it. We don't deserve it, but then we get the benefits from it. And not just a few of us here and there cherry-picked, you over there and you... No. Jesus' sacrifice is enough for the sins of the whole world. Any person anywhere in the world, should they but repent, turn from, confess their sins, believe in Jesus, lay their lives down at his feet, they will have their sins forgiven. What a sacrifice. What, What an advocate. What a savior. What a God. Don't leave here today without knowing him. 
talk to me, talk to someone. Don't leave here without knowing who he is. God is light. We, sinners though we are, can walk in that light because of the blood of Jesus. And as we do, we enter into fellowship with one another as well as with God himself, which is what John is going after in the proclamation of this message. So allow me to end here by asking a few questions. How are you doing with that? Are you living for God, walking in the light as he is in the light, or are you still holding on to some of that darkness? Oh, sure, in these areas, yep, I'm all for God, but yeah, let's not talk about these places. Let's, let's kind of just keep, keep these kind of out of sight, out of mind. Are you confessing your sins, truly acknowledging them, asking for forgiveness and turning away from them? Or do you seek to rather explain them away, minimize them, rationalize them, justify them? Are you now and always trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? That he is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the only payment that can cover your sins. No amount of good work, effort, church attendance, anything can accomplish what his blood does. You see, he is the one from the beginning who was made manifest to John and to countless others. He's the word of life, the eternal life, the one who brings us into fellowship with God and one another. He is the light of the world. And whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So will you. Let's pray together. Father, as we live our lives, we feel the darkness of this world. We feel its pull to us in sneaky ways, if we're being honest, in appealing ways. And God, we feel the darkness even in our own hearts. So it is such good news to read that you are light and in you is no darkness at all. Because that is exactly what we need. God, we are stained through and through. We have no hope on our own of overcoming any aspect of sin, and yet you have overcome the world. Through your Son, Jesus, you have saved us from our sins. His blood has bought our freedom. And for that we praise you. And we thank you. And we ask that as we seek to live in the light, to walk in the light as you are in the light, that you would guide our steps. Lord, open our eyes to the areas that we are not being faithful to you. Help us to see how we are not engaging in true, genuine fellowship with one another. And break our hearts that we might live in line with your revelation. God, we need you. We are pulled every which way. Ground us in the truth of your word. Knit our hearts to the reality of living in light of your gospel. That we might glorify you in all that we do. Because you deserve it. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.